Where did we leave off last week? Frantically searching through your notebook. Right here? We were talking about the sapiens and things like that. Uh, we were, in the broader sense, we were talking about hierarchies and where we fit, right? Um, and we were talking about the Linnaean hierarchy in this case, right? This procedure and organizational scheme that Carl Linnaeus came up with to describe where organisms are, uh, how they're all similar, how they relate to other organisms, okay? And I was making the case that you have a place in this hierarchy as well. You are a sapien of the genus Homo. You're a hominid. Um, to be a Homo sapien means that you use tools and you think about stuff. If you translate to Latin, that's what we're doing, okay? We're thinking tool users. Are we doing that right now? You're doing two things, right? You're thinking about what I'm saying and you're writing it down, right? You're a thinking tool user. Like how he tied that into, I mean, you are what you're doing right now in class, okay? That's what your name implies. You're a thinking tool user. Um, you're a hominid. We used to be the only hominid, okay? Um, and the orangutans were put in this other family called the Pongidae, uh, and things like that. Now most of the great apes are part of the same family, hominidae, okay? Uh, to be a hominid means that if you ask a lot of people what the current definition of the hominidae is, you are, if you're 97% genetically similar to a human, you are a hominid, okay? So that includes most of the old world great apes, humans, chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, and bonobos, okay? Um, so those are the things that are 97% genetically similar to, to the human, so those are now the hominidae. You are a primate. You have one of what? You have a, one of these, opposable thumb. Come on in, James. You have an opposable thumb, which makes you a primate. And you have forward-looking vision and a fairly reasonably sized brain. But like I said, jury's still out. We'll find out on the first exam. Right about that. Um, you are a mammal. What do you do that makes you a mammal? You are warm-blooded. That's what I'm assuming. You're a mammal. We don't lay eggs. Yeah, you have birth, with the exception of a couple of weird mammals, ductile platypus and things like that. But but they're weirdos. We tend to give live birth. What else? Do you have? Yeah, you, we lactate. Well, about half of us do, right? Uh, we feed our young through lactation, right? We can do that. Uh, yeah. What else? Yeah, hair. hair, right? Some of us have hair, right? Some of us have less hair than others, right? Um, we are pelagic. We have fur. Yes, we do, right? Uh, some of us has more than others. Uh, the amount changes through time, gentlemen, just so you know. Um, you've lost most of it, okay, evolutionarily. Uh, when we get cold, occasionally, ma mammals in general, when you get cold, you'll stick your hair up and make this nice dead air space between your, your hair and your skin. Right, like those really big but very, very light poofy coats, right? They're really, really warm, but they have like no mass. You know, they're really soft, really poofy. We do the same thing. We make all our hair stand up on end, or at least we did when we had it, right? Now when we get cold, all the mechanisms for standing that hair up on end still operate. You get goosebumps, right? But you lost the hair, okay? Um, so you have that mechanism for keeping yourself warm, but you use those goosebumps as an indicator to put a big poofy jacket on as opposed to actually raising your hair up. So the mechanism remains, although the hair is actually gone. Uh, you are a vertebrate. That's your subphylum. You have a uh, ossified backbone, 
okay? And you are a chordate. You have a cartilaginous notochord that goes up your spine as well. A lot of it's been subsumed and ossified as part of your, your centrum of your vertebrae, but some of it still remains, those little uh, cartilaginous discs in between your vertebrae. Yes? Derived from old notochord, okay? So you have a place here in this, uh, in this hierarchy, right? Um, you are the only homo sapien out there, but there are other hominids out there, okay? All these other great apes. There are other primates out there, right? There are a lot of mammals out there, and there are a huge number of chordates. So the farther in this direction you go, in the downward direction, the fewer and fewer organisms there are in each one of these classifications, right? The farther up in this direction you go, the more things are included in them. There are very few hominids, but there are a lot of chordates, okay? Which makes it a hierarchy, right? Yep. It does. Um, there are other ways to organize diversity. This is just Linnaeus's way. It was not based on evolutionary descent. It was not based on, on, uh, on evolution with modification and things like that. It was not based on uh, inheritance or anything like that. Linnaeus's system of taxonomy is just based on structural similarity. Okay, what makes a primate a primate is not we're all descended from a primate, it's that we have these opposable thumbs and we look forward. Okay, so it really is just structural similarity in Linnaeus's mind. There are other ways to organize diversity, okay, um, that have other sources of information as its basis. This is the diversity of life on Earth, according to Matt Groening of Simpsons fame. Simpsons? Yes, yeah. we all watch The Simpsons, don't we? Um, and it's kind of funny, right, if you look at where these kind of uh, organisms live. Politicians and criminals are both derived from squid, okay? My personal favorite up here. The French and actors are both derived from poodles, okay? Um, so there's a basis to his organization here, right? Uh, what do French actors and poodles all have in common? These little hair head things that come out of your side, right? Uh, and possibly a little snooty, maybe, right? I think this has offended the actors and the French in the room by saying that. Um, uh, there's all kinds, of, you know, dissatisfied females are derived from cats. Dissatisfied males are derived from dogs, right? So there's some kind of basis to Mad Groening's classification here, okay? Um, it's not evolutionary descent. It's not structural similarity. What's the basis of his classification scheme here? My earlier class couldn't answer this either. There is one, right? It's not just things is placed up there randomly, is it? What does Matt Groening use as the basis of his classification here? We can tell, right? When I said actors in the French are both derived from poodles, there's a collective ha-ha, right? So his organizational scheme is based on humor, right? Pop culture, how we perceive things, right? Stereotypes in, in culture as we see them, right? Um, it's not evolutionary descent. It's not a structural similarity. But there is a system to his classification. Yes? Yeah. All right? So you can classify things a lot of different ways, all right? And what they indicate right, is what the basis of the classification is. Linnaeus was structural similarity. Matt Groening, right, is ha-ha pop culture fun, okay. Everson's Darwin came out and wrote his book, we like to classify things based on evolutionary descent as well, okay. So here is not necessarily Darwin's classification, right, but a classification that represents evolutionary descent and modification, okay? So this is actually one based on who is related to who, all right? Um, you can have a branching diagram that has nothing to do with evolutionary descent, right? It's just a way to link hierarchies together. 
If we see how we fit into an evolutionary classification scheme, right here we see ourselves and our first cousins, the chimpanzees, okay, our farther out cousins, the gorillas and orangutans, and here's the gibbons over there. These are the African-based great apes. We don't have tails, and we're big, and we live on the ground, mostly, okay? If we look at ourselves as the great apes, all derived from this common ancestor right there, we can see that we have a cousin over here. What is this? This is a baboon, right? We've seen the baboons over in the zoo, right? They run around and do all kinds of weird stuff and they act all crazy, right? Not, not unlike humans on a Friday night, okay? So we don't, we're not that different from them. We're all primates after all. Um, these baboons are classified as old world monkeys, okay? What makes an old world monkey an old world monkey and not a great ape is that thing right there. They still have their tails. What does a baboon do with his tail? Anything? It, it does not hang on trees with its tail. It doesn't do anything with its tail, right? It just kind of there, right? Yeah, it is decoration more than anything else. Um, they seem to have virtually no control. It's just kind of along for the ride, right? They really just don't do anything with their tails, right? And old world monkeys, that will be the case, right? With the old world monkeys, they tend to not do things with their tails. It's not that they don't. They just really don't have the musculature in the tail to actually do something with it. I mean, it's, it's less than your, the, the, the tail of your dog or cat, okay? Um, now, here's the New World monkeys over here, okay? They do things with their tails. The New World monkeys actually can use their tail as uh, an ex accessory limb. It's called a prehensile tail, okay? So what we see is uh, long ago, there was some common ancestor between the Old World and the New World monkeys, okay? Somewhere up here right, uh, the tail stopped being used, or somewhere over here, the tail was developed to be useful in some way or another. Over here, however, along this lineage, lost the tail completely, okay, and started to get big and started living on the ground and doing things. Over here, right, uh, the size of the brain started to increase dramatically proportion to the body. Over here, right, we actually started to do things like stand up and use tools. Okay, even the chimpanzee occasionally can use tools. They can get a stick, fashion it, and fish for termites instead of a termite mound, right? So chimpanzees are good tool users just like we are. We obviously have taken it to a fairly uh, unbelievable extreme. Yes? I mean, lasers, right, and video cameras and things like that. So, uh, so here we are, right? So this is a classification scheme based on descent, you know, evolutionary heritage, who is related to who. Now. Unlike with Matt Groening's classification, this is not a chimpanzee right here, and we're not saying that humans are derived from chimpanzees. What we're saying is, here's the chimpanzee at that end of that twig, and here's us. Humans and chimpanzees have a common ancestor. Okay? We are not saying that we are derived from monkeys. We are saying that humans and monkeys have a common ancestor. Those are two different things. We're not derived from chimpanzees any more than chimpanzees are derived from us. Right? But we do share a common ancestor about four or five million years ago. That's when that branching event right there happened, as best we can tell. All right? So no, we're not derived from monkeys. We're derived from African apes. So there it is. Now, we've added another classification level right, to uh, Linnaeus. Oftentimes, when we compare what Linnaeus did to an evolutionary diversity 
uh, tree of life kind of scheme, we see there are similarities, right? A lot of times if you share a lot of structural similarities, you'll be part of the same taxonomic grouping, and you'll also be part of the same evolutionary descent lineage, okay? But that's often the case. It's not always the case, right? Um, your lab manual currently states that there are five kingdoms, right? There are actually six now. The Monerans have been split. Right? The Monerans are no longer a kingdom of themselves. The Monerans have been split into the bacteria and the Archaeans. Okay? The bacteria, the things that you get in your intestines, um, they're covering every surface that's currently in front of you. Right? Garden variety bacteria, we call the, the bacteria. The Archaeans tend to not live where you go. Okay? They do strange things. They live in hydrothermal vent environments, um, volcanic pools in Yellowstone and things like that. They, they make their living in very strange ways. Sulfate reducers and things like that, anaerobic uh, methanogens. They, they do weird things okay, biochemically. They don't do things like we do them typically. Right? Uh, but they're a kingdom, or they're a domain all their own, okay? and a kingdom all their own. So if we look at those six kingdoms, all right, and see how they split into these larger now group that we put on top of the kingdoms called the domains, we see that the bacteria are a domain, okay, the Archaeans are a domain, and the other four kingdoms, right, are part of this domain over here, the eukaryotes. So anything that has a membrane-bound nucleus and organelles is part of the domain eukarya, or that we call them eukaryotes, and there are four. The protists, the single-celled, although there are some multi-celled protists all up and down here. And then there are the big three that we talk about more than anything else in Biology 102. The plants, the animals, and the fungi. Okay? Of these, you are most closely related to the... You are an animal, right? As an animal, you are more closely related to the... Which one? The fungi. Okay? So, what do you do differently than the fungi? What do you do differently? You do nutritionally, nutritionally you do things a little bit differently. That's pretty much the biggest difference. Where do you digest your lunch? Over the cafeteria, right? Yeah, funny. Uh, yeah, in your stomach, right? You take the food and you put it inside of you, right? Where do the fungi do it? Outside of the body, right? So if you have your, what did you have today? Anybody? I had the chicken salad. So I have my chicken salad sandwich over here. I'm just going to, mm, that was good. I put my hand on it, release some digestive enzymes, okay, and it's going to start digesting outside of my body and it's going to start diffusing across my skin and into me, right? Um, what do I do that's different from that? I put, it, I put it inside my body, in my stomach, where I release digestive enzymes and let it diffuse across my stomach membrane. Is that any different? I'm sort of doing the same thing, right? I'm, I've just made myself into a tube. Okay, and I put that food into my tube. Um, it can be very gross and disgusting, you know, and start saying, when something is in your stomach, is it inside your body or is it still outside of your body? Things inside your stomach are still outside of the body and part of the environment. Okay, have you crossed a membrane when you put something into your stomach? Can that stuff come right back out very easily? Yes, it can, right? Um, if you, if you take a 50-foot-long string and you swallow it and wait a couple of days, right? Both ends of that string can be on the outside of the body, but the rest of it can be on the inside of the body, right? 
Um, so when you think about how am I different from a fungus, in terms of what you do, right, it's not necessarily just that you bring food inside your body to digest it, because it's not even that far, right? You've just made kind of a structural tube out of yourself, right? And when you release enzymes to digest things, you do them in an internalized pocket that is still continuous with the environment versus the fungus, which just grows on stuff and releases them truly outside of the body into the environment and then diffuses the things across the membrane, right? So you're not all that different, okay, from, from the fungus. Now, trees, plants, they're doing some different things, okay, that uh, when you talk, take biology 102, which hopefully I'm convincing you to do, right, you'll find out, well, trees really are kind of doing some different things. They have the same problems, energy conversion and all that kind of stuff, but they're, they come up with different solutions to a lot of these problems, all right? Uh, but you can see some interesting things over here in the bacteria, don't you? Two that are kind of neat. One right here. Your mitochondria. What are they doing nested in with the bacteria? Are we really saying that your mitochondria are bacteria? What is mitochondria? Anybody? What is mitochondria? Yes, yeah, that organelle that you use to convert energy in your in your cells. Is it a bacteria? Yes, it is. It has its own DNA, has its own ribosomes, has its own bacterial uh, binary fission process. It is derived from bacteria, right? It's derived from bacteria that take in glucose and oxygen and make ATP, right? So what have you done? Sometime in your evolutionary history, you outsourced your ATP production to a bacteria. You've entered into an agreement with a bacteria. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to bring you into my cell, okay? And I'm going to give you all the oxygen and all the glucose you want, but you got to give me a lot of ATP in return, okay? Without the mitochondria, for every molecule of glucose, you can make about four molecules of ATP, okay? If you give that glucose and the oxygen to the mitochondria, you can make about 32, okay? It does a much better job of making ATP out of that energy and glucose than you do. Good idea? Absolutely, right? You know, sometimes outsourcing is a good idea, okay? Uh, it, it enabled us to do things, make a lot more ATP out of glucose uh, than we could before. And you can do things as a result of that, get big and energetic and all that kind of stuff. All right, the downside is you got to keep those things going, right? Um, and they require a lot of oxygen, okay? How much ATP do you have in storage backed up for later if you need to? You got about four minutes of it, right? How do we test that hypothesis, huh? Put a plastic bag over your head, okay? Cut off the oxygen of the mitochondria and see how long you last, right? So you've entered an agreement, but they kind of own you here, right? You know, you don't have a lot of, you're keeping your mitochondria, that's what you're doing every moment of your life, right? Is keeping your mitochondria happy. And when you stop doing that, death ensues, right? There's only one way to die. Right, stop giving enough oxygen and glucose to your mitochondria, right, and everything else is kind of details, you know. Um, what else do you see down here? Chloroplasts, what are they doing? Did they invent any interesting reactions in Earth history? Yeah, photosynthesis. So, how do I convert electromagnetic radiation into glucose? That's a bacteria as well, right, that the plants, right, some primitive plant cell had taken in, right, to become photosynthetic. You know, the bacteria invented most of the really important <coughs> biochemical reactions uh, in Earth history. Anybody derived from farmers or have farmers in your ancestry that you know of or are familiar with the concept of farming? Sure. Anybody? 
Excellent. Every three years you plant beans, right? You rotate your crops. You've heard of this crop rotation. Why do you have to do that? If you just plant corn year after year after year. It does. It does. Specifically, specifically, nitrogen. Okay. Um, every three years, you have to plant a bean, some sort of legume. Soybeans is preferred because you can do a lot with a soybean, right? It's very diverse. Not just make tofu out of it and things like that, right? Um, the legumes, the beans, right, have nitrogen-fixing bacteria in a symbiotic relationship in their roots, right? And they're one of the few creatures on earth, these bacteria that can actually take atmospheric nitrogen out of the air, okay, um, and make things like ammonia and nitrates out of it, okay? Not many things can do that, all right? Um, if you don't have those bacteria in the soil, if you don't plant those legumes, your soil is going to run out of nitrogen and nothing's going to grow there, okay? So really astoundingly big, important biochemical reactions, nitrogen fixation, right, photosynthesis, aerobic respiration. These are all reactions that are invented by bacteria, right, that have been co-opted by a eukaryote somewhere else, okay? The only thing the eukaryotes have really invented that is truly astounding, right, is multicellularity. Everything else is pretty much a bacteria invention that we sort of took over, right, co-opted into our own, for our own, for our own uses. Neat stuff, right? So you can learn interesting things about these guys up here from seeing where other things land on here. So chloroplast and mitochondria bacteria, absolutely, absolutely, right? Keep your mitochondria happy or bad things will happen to you quickly. All right, so all of these different ways, right, that life exists in a hierarchy, okay? There's a hierarchy of structure that we were talking about long ago atoms, molecules, molecules to cells, cells to multicellular organisms, and above that, population communities, right? We have the hierarchy of similarity, which we call the Linnaean hierarchy. You know, who is shaped and structured most like me? Chimpanzee, it turns out, right? And other things that are farther removed that are not quite shaped like me, like earthworms and trees, right, are farther away in the Linnaean hierarchy. We have the Darwinian point of view, right, evolutionary classification scheme, who is most closely related to me, right? Who is most closely related to an earthworm, things like that. So there are a lot of ways that nature exists in this structured hierarchy. So as life on earth seems to be based on carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen, life on earth also seems to be based on a hierarchical scale of organization. So it seems to be kind of one of these foundations of modern biology, right? These internested hierarchies, several of them, all of which you can tell me about in the exam, right? Yes? Oh, not convincing. Yes? Yeah. Excellent. Plenty of hierarchies out there that you can tell me about. Okay. Uh, so life is big and unified in all of these hierarchies, but it's also very, very diverse. Okay. So the question you might want to ask is, if you were thinking about this in a thoughtful way, although life is very, very unified in what it's made of, how it's organized, the different ways that it's organized and things like that, how does that diversity come to be? Right? Um, and a lot of people spent a lot of time thinking about this. It wasn't just Darwin invents evolution and then everything else is uh, kind of secondary to that. Right? Every culture has some sort of myth about where diversity comes from. Native American aboriginal legends about where life comes from and where humans come from and where people come from. The Greeks, right? Of course, the Greeks think of pretty much thought of everything first except for mathematics, right? Which was, you know, thought of by other, other people first. Um, have ideas about where people come from, right? So 
Um, even though this information is presented on the blackboard, you don't have to write down this laundry list of different ideas and things like that. Appreciate these things for what they are. So don't write these down. This is, this is listening as, this is, this is listening as opposed to writing. All right. Um, talking about some of the Greeks, Anaximander had ideas about this. Okay. The Greeks early on, man has coming to being through transmutations. So we're talking about man coming into being through changes from one organism into a next. Uh, BC, 2,500 years ago, did Darwin invent evolution? Oh no. Oh no. Right. He, he invented what we think is the current mechanism of evolution, or at least one of the current mechanisms of evolution. Evolution as a concept has been around for 2,500 years, at least, at least, all right? Um, Lamarck, in his laws of use and, oh, interestingly about Anaximander, descended from an, from an ape, probably aquatic. What do you think about that? Anaximander's aquatic ape. Why aquatic? You can understand the ape part, right? We're kind of, we're kind of apey. Aquatic? How many swimming apes do you know? None? Where was Anaximander? Greece. Okay, what do you know about the Greeks? They like to swim. They're an aquatic culture, right? They're associated with the ocean and the Mediterranean. Everything has to come from the ocean, right? Including the Greeks, which were first, right? Ask any Greek, right? Uh, so, you know, so, you know, the aquatic apes bringing forth and thus giving rise to the Greeks and then all the other secondary cultures like everybody else, right? Springing forth uh, from there, right? So this aquatic ape, if you're a, you know, a, a Greco-centric person, it makes perfect sense. Well, then Lamarck comes along uh, and starts talking about his laws of use and disuse, which we were talking about last time. Who is that that I had stretching over here on the wall for 10 hours a day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're going to stretch and you're going to stretch and you're going to stretch and then you're going to have some babies and they're all going to have really, really long left arms, right? It doesn't make sense for you. Why should it make sense for the giraffe, right? So the giraffe is not stretching his neck, you know, trying to reach for those leaves on the top of the tree. It doesn't work for you. Don't impose it on the giraffe, please. Right? So the law of inheritance of acquired characteristics. You can get as bulky as you want. You can lift all the weights you want to do. Your kids are not going to be any stronger for it. Period. Right? Right. Uh, that's a very fast way to have big evolutionary changes, though, isn't it? I mean, you can have rapid evolutionary changes in generational scales if you're using Lamarck's law of inherited characteristics. Yeah. I mean, you could get a giraffe with a long neck and... 200 years if there's enough stretching happened. And that's important, isn't it? How old is the Earth? Now we know it to be about 4.5, 4.6. How old was it? If you asked Lamarck, what would he say? Yeah, 6,000, 7,000, six and 10,000 years, right? Um, if you only got an Earth that old, right, your evolutionary change is going to have to be quick, okay? So you need to come up with a way for evolution to happen very, very fast, okay, if the Earth is such a young thing, right? So even though this sounds ridiculous today, even though you have been imposing it on the giraffe all your life, but now you know better, right? Even though this sounds ridiculous today, you know, if you, if you had to come up with a mechanism for a very rapid evolutionary change, right, this might be something that you would come up with, okay, something that happened on generational scales. Leclerc, 
um, was really talking about uh, similarities between apes and humans. And he did suggest common ancestry between them. What Leclerc is most known for, right, in most circles, is actually saying this whole 6,000-year Earth thing it's probably isn't so hot, right? Maybe the Earth is older than that, and we can come up with more reasonable mechanisms, doubting the things that Lamarck was saying a little bit, right, that maybe this whole inheritance of acquired characteristics isn't so hot. So if the problem the short time period that the Earth has been around is hamstringing us and our ability to come up with an adequate mechanism for evolution. So let's ditch the age and make the Earth older. Lord Kelvin did similar things. Did I talk about Lord Kelvin last time? Have you ever calculated something in degrees Kelvin? It's like the standard uh, measurement of temperature in a chemistry or physics class, the, Kel the Kelvin. Ab absolute zero is zero Kelvins. Room temperature is 293, give or take. Uh, freezing temperature of water is 273 degrees Kelvin, right? So Kelvin has devoted his life to the measurement of temperature, okay? Kelvin tried to infer the age of the Earth based on its temperature. If you have a ball as big as the Earth, okay, and you start out with molten rock, how long would it take for the Earth to cool to its present temperature? And he came up with an age in the millions, okay? Millions of years old, which is progress. Didn't come close. He didn't know about things like radioactivity in the Earth core that was constantly providing new sources of heat or things like that. But around this time, really starting to make progress and pushing back the age of the Earth uh, uh, much farther. And then comes this man. That is not Socrates. The camera did not exist when Socrates was around. Right? This is Charles Darwin, right? Um, 1809 to 1882, he wrote his book in 1859, or I should say he published his book in 1859. Right? He was a theologian, as he was all of his life, never intended to cast any doubt on the existence of God or anything like that, although a lot of people blame him for these kind of things. If you're a rampant Darwinist, right, uh, you don't have a place in heaven, if you ask a lot of people. Okay. Um, uh, he was always very interested in nature as well, though, as, as well as being a theologian. He died as much of a theologian as he was when he was born. Right? So the ideas he came up with never challenged his faith at all. Okay? Um, and he actually came out and said it. All species are derived from a common ancestor, and this is how, okay? He didn't just kind of mouth off about this, about transmutations and vague things like that, right? He actually came up with a mechanism called... Evolution. Natural selection, okay? That's Darwin's claim to fame. Evolution's been around for 2,500 years, okay? Natural selection is just a mechanism of that, okay? How do species transmute? Okay, and that was the problem. Lamarck had an idea about how species transmute. Anaximander didn't have an idea about how species transmute. Okay, Darwin does have an idea about that, and he called it natural selection. And uh, he, sort of, he, he sort of became the winner, right? It's the hypothesis that isn't rejected over and over and over again. Okay, um, he didn't know anything about inheritance, though. Gregor Mendel, as we'll talk about in a second, was doing his mating experiments with peas, right, seeing how genes and information and structures are passed from one generation to the next. Darwin and Mendel never even knew of each other throughout either of their entire lives, okay? Although they were working to, at the same time, right? They were not working together in any way. So Darwin was saying, I don't know how information is passed from one generation to the next, but it obviously is, okay? Which is the first step of the process of natural selection. So just so you know, from the outside, I want to make a clear statement. If on the exam, when I ask you to describe the process of natural selection, if you put survival of the fittest, you will receive no points for that answer. That is not survival of the fittest, or that is not natural selection in any way. And nobody ever said it was, okay? So natural selection, survival of the fittest, yes? No. no. 
That was a trick question there. Did you get that? The answer, it's usually yes, but in this case, it's a resounding no. All right, so what is it? Natural selection is a series of four statements, two of which are observations and two of which are inferences. Observation number one, heritable, vari heritable variation exists in the population. Does it? Evidenced by what? Look around you, right? There's heritable variation in the classroom. Variation, yes, that's easy to see. Heritable, are you a composite of your parents' traits? Absolutely. What do you have that looks like something from your parents? I have my mom's. What? You have your mom's what? What do you have? You have your mom's teeth? What do you have from your mom? Anybody recognize any structures they have from their mom? Ears. You have your mom's ears. How about your dad? Nose. I have my mom's complexion. I have my dad's hands. Just out of the blue. I still have my dad's gender. Did I get that from my dad? I did. All right. Heritable variation exists in the population. I don't need to convince you of this. We're good? Okay, we're good. More offspring are produced than the environment can support. Um, is there infant mortality? If we didn't have any infant mortality in rats for five years, how many rats would there be on Earth? We'd be up to in rats. All right? Um, cockroaches. Kittens. You know, in the spring when the baby ducks are out here in the lake, there'll be a mother with about nine of them following behind. A week later, there'll be a mother with about six of them following behind. And a week later, there'll be a mother with about three of them behind. Out of those nine, maybe two, three maybe, will make it to adulthood. The rest are dinner for something else. Usually around here, crows and hawks. Did you ever see a crow take out a baby duck? <laughs> no. It happens all the time, right? If you sit out there and watch in a lawn chair, you can see it, right? A bunch of ducks laying around. Hawk will come down, or a or crow will come down. Just grab it and go. Nothing to it. It's like going to the drive-thru, right? Um, so it happens all the time. Nature's a messy place, and it's not particularly forgiving, right? Infant mortality is everywhere. There are way more organisms that are produced than could possibly survive in the ecosystem, okay? We good? No faith there, right? You can believe that. You can, you can buy that without a lot of uh, convincing. There's competition for resources. The basis of that competition is all of these babies that couldn't possibly survive to adulthood, right? So because there's this uh, huge amount of offspring that are born, right, um, there's more babies that are out there than the environment could actually support, okay? So the parents, babies, whatever you want to think about, right, that are better fit to the environment, right, that are better competitors, that are able to acquire those resources over their compadres, right, are going to be the ones that are going to be able to divort, devote more of those resources to the next generation. So it's not survival of the fittest in any kind of way. Um, because survival of the fittest doesn't say anything about reproduction. Natural selection is about who gets to have the most babies. Survival of the fittest is who gets to live the longest, and those are two very different things. Not necessarily. 
you just need to have as many babies as possible, right? Whoever has the most kids wins. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to live a long time to do it, right? So survival of the fittest, I mean, you can imagine in some sort of way that if you live a long time, you can have more kids. Anybody here have any kids? I'm 38 and I don't have any. How's that working in a Darwinian way? Am I surviving? I'm doing a very good job of surviving. I've lasted 38 years, right? Darwinian perspective, I am a complete, utter, and total failure. So Darwinian selection has nothing to do with survival. You can survive all you want, right? It's about how much of that energy that you can compete for do you send to the next generation. So it is not survival of the fittest, right? It's the, uh, the victor who has the most kids, right? Uh, and presumably there is a relationship between being able to have all those babies and your ability to get resources for them. Okay, that's what natural selection is, right? If you can get a lot of resources because you have inherited these characteristics, right, that enable you to gather these resources, then you're going to be able to have more successful children, okay, that are going to have those characteristics as well. Social Darwinism is what it's referred to as, right? Um, it's the reason why uh, it, it's the reason why you live a long time. It's not a mechanism for evolution in any way. If you're not reproducing, your genes just die with you. It doesn't matter how old you are. You might want natural selection to be survival of the fittest, but it's just not. There's nothing to do with it. Survival of the fittest is about living a long time, and natural selection is about reproduction. Right, and, and those are very different things, very different things. So when I say, describe the process of natural selection, how do you answer that? It's easy, you say one, heritable variation exists in the population. Two, more offspring are produced than the environment can possibly support. This is it, right? Is this astounding, earth shattering, mind blowing? Is there any part of this you don't buy? Make perfect sense? If you're gonna go from a single cell to the vast diversity of life on the today, how long is this gonna take? A long, long, long time. 6,000 years? No way. You'll get a couple new strains of the flu in 6,000 years, but that's about it. Okay. Um, that's about it. That's about it. You might be able to make a small dog out of a big one, right, uh, or carrier pigeons and things like that, but this is not uh, going to happen in 6,000 years. You just don't have enough time, right? You're going to need billions, which is why it shouldn't be surprised that Darwin only comes up with these ideas right about the same time that people like Hutton are saying, maybe the Earth is really old, like billions, not just thousands, not just tens of thousands or millions. Maybe the Earth is billions of years old. To come up with a mechanism like this, you need that kind of time, which only in the middle 1800s, we're starting to think that we do. Speak. Would you, would you say that um, natural selection would apply to us now, uh, with knowing that um, there's, what, 6.6 billion people? You know, I had, this, I had this exact same conversation in my class this morning because there's always a student in a room, and this is a good thing because it's, it's a good conversation to have, um, that when we talk about this, somebody always asks if we've managed to, as a smart tool-using primate, have we thought ourselves out of natural selection, right? So you find out through a sonogram that your baby has a heart valve defect in utero. So a doctor goes in and fixes it. Should that baby be alive and reproducing? Darwin says, no, it shouldn't, right? Uh, that's not an organism that should live. I had an appendectomy when I was 17. Should I be 
alive and reproducing? I should have croaked a long time ago. Who in here? Raise your hand. Who in here should be dead by now if it wasn't for medical intervention? Look at that. How many people? One, two, three, four, five, six. Half of us should be dead already if medical intervention didn't intervene. Medical intervention. If not for medical intervention, that's better. Right? What does that tell you? Have we, have we thought our way out of this? A little bit. A little bit. Right? Maybe a little bit. Uh, some traits are going from one generation to the next that in a purely Darwinian world probably wouldn't. All right? Probably wouldn't. I mean, you can't think about things like heart disease. Right? That's all stuff that happens to you after you've had kids. Right? After you've given birth, whatever happens to you happens to you with no Darwinian consequences at all. After you have your last kid, you're just taking up resources right, that somebody else could, could use. Right? We're social. So I should say after our kids leave for college, we're just using up resources that could go to somebody else. Right? Um, but things like you know, likelihood for appendix heart valve defects that are you know, genetic, um, anything like that. Right? Any genetic trait that you have, right, that could possibly be fatal, that was fixed or made you live through medical intervention that you're able to pass on is counter to this, right? So a lot of us are alive that shouldn't be, and a lot of us might be reproducing who shouldn't be based on a Darwinian point of view. Am I saying that if your kid gets, an append gets appendicitis, we should just go ahead and, well, they were a good child, right, and uh, wait for them to, to perish an awful, awful death? Yes? Who agrees, right? Let the, let the children who are ill perish. Yes? No? No, because we're not, you know, awful, awful people, right? You can't do that kind of thing, right? Nor should we. So I'm not advocating we let everybody die who should die and not, right? If we did, we would just kind of get rid of the whole medical industry, right? But a sixth of the economy today in the United States, as we've heard over and over again, is oriented towards keeping people alive, who under normal circumstances probably would not. Yes? Uh, yeah, I mean, you try to moderate these things as best you can, right? If you're able to see what's going on and start to realize there are more offspring being produced in China right now than the environment could possibly support, there are consequences to that, right? I mean, you can't sustain that forever. So you can change that either voluntarily or it will be changed for you involuntarily, okay? So you opt for the former so you don't have to contend with the latter. So all excellent points. So I'm not saying let kids, you know, die when bad things happen to them, but there are consequences to that. So you might start wondering, are we as a population getting more unhealthy through time because we're passing along a lot of genes that should kill us? And the answer to that is, what do you think? I would go for maybe on that, right? A lot of things get fixed by medical intervention that would probably kill you, that you might pass on to your own kids. Right? And that, those genes might, if you have a lot of kids, right, might be accumulating in the population more and more. You know? So who knows? Who knows? We're all reasonably healthy. I mean, we're, we're doing okay. You know, but there are long-term consequences to this. If the appendix was slowly going away evolutionarily because it tries to kill us all the time, we've put a screeching halt to that, at least in the Western world. Because right? it doesn't kill you any longer. You do just fine. Well, I'm not having kids, but besides that. All right. Um, so this continues on after uh, Darwin. Darwin made his statements about what the mechanism was, but then people after Darwin, right, were pretty much focused on putting together this genetic 
uh, just genetic, genetic machinery. Wallace, a contemporary of Darwin, was saying a lot of the same things uh, as Darwin was, a la natural selection. The race was on, though, to publish first. Either Wallace was going to publish his ideas first or Darwin was. Darwin's was more well-crafted and more ready to print at the time. So Darwin went ahead and published it, and Wall Wallace said, yeah, what he said. It was essentially what Wallace did. You know, Darwin's right, what, what he said. Um, but then after, after that, it was only in the early 1900s that the work of Gregor Mendel was actually excavated and found, right? Um, and then we realized after the fact that uh, Gregor Mendel figured out this whole heredity thing to an astounding amount of, of, of accuracy in, in the 1800s. Um, uh, Punnett squares, right? If mom has these traits and dad has these and these are the gametes they make, how many kids and how many, in what proportion will they have these traits, those kind of things. We'll get to that when we talk about Mendelian genetics. But that was the kind of things that Gregor Mendel was doing, right? What is the mathematical basis of heredity? Okay, and he inferred a lot about uh, molecular genetics, like independent assortment and chromosomes and things like that, just from his work alone. Pretty astounding, not knowing anything about DNA at the time. And then eventually Watson and Crick come along, right, and they actually infer a structure right, of the DNA molecule that has all the properties that Gregor Mendel uh, envisioned and discovered, okay? And ever since then, we kind of think it's pretty much kind of wrapped up anyway, right? We, it all makes perfect sense here, right? Um, Mendel has a, has a mechanism of heredity. Watson and Crick came up with the molecule, and it turns out they're right. Darwin has a mechanism for, uh, called natural selection for, that accounts for all the evolution and adaptation that we see. What's left? What's left? You know, it's, called the, it's the modern synthesis of biology, right? Mendel plus Darwin equals pretty much 99% of the answers of, of evolutionary theory right there, all right? So it's not that evolution is some kind of new invention that, that Darwin came up with, right? Um, it just happens to be Darwin came up with the mechanism for evolution to, to happen as we see it. There are other ways to evolve. You don't have to do it via natural selection. Right? Um, you can come up with a new novel mutation of your own, right? Which changes the frequencies of genes in the population. That's what evolution is, right? Um, we might go through a genetic bottleneck, and some of us might, even though we're randomly mating with each other, some of us might leave more offspring than others, right? So that you can have evolution without natural selection happening. Natural selection is the mechanism of adaptive evolution, right, that we, that we see. When you see an organism fit to its environment and doing things well, like a crow being able to pick off a baby duck in the blink of an eye, right, that's natural selection right there, okay? Good stuff. So hierarchies, okay, hierarchies was what we were talking about there. Um, one of the ways that nature is organized. Uh, one of the other commonalities to all life on Earth, okay, besides just those hierarchical organizations, is energy conversion and metabolism. I've talked this to death already in the first week, right? Um, all life on Earth, and as we probably envision all life in the universe, right, not just holding it, uh, holding it true for Earth, but everywhere, right, as it might exist, um, you have a metabolism, and yours and the metabolism of all life on Earth is based on enzymes, proteins, Okay, chains of amino acids that have a three-dimensional shape and structure, which facil facilitates biochemical reactions. Okay, so again, energy flowing through the ecosystem in as electromagnetic radiation and out as heat, right, is flowing this recycling of nutrients, and that whole process is catalyzed, so to speak, right, by uh, by enzymes, proteins. That's what proteins do for us. Okay. So energy flowing one way, fueling that cycling of nutrients, and enzymes being the workhorses there. So that energy conversion process you call your metabolism. 
it's faster in some of you than others. It will slow down as you get older. You might need 2,000, 2,500 calories today. That number will go down as you get older. So eat those entire large meat lovers pizzas while you can, right? Because pretty soon you're just going to look at it and you're going to gain five pounds. That'll happen when you're about 25, just so you know. So look forward to that. Use it while you got it, right? Because uh, your days are numbered on that high, high metabolic rate thing. You respond to stimuli. So you're arranging a hierarchy. You have a metabolism, and you respond to stimuli. Uh, you can respond to it externally. You can respond to your environment. Your environment can change, and so you do something about it. If it gets too cold in here, like it is, right, you can choose to put a jacket on. You can crunch yourself up and keep all your limbs kind of close to your body, which a lot of you are doing right now, which is a rather unconscious way to control your temperature, reducing surface area. All right. Um, you can respond internally. That's a process called homeostasis. With us mammals, uh, even though it's doing everything it's doing out here, our body temperature really isn't changing that much. We're keeping a good 98.6 on the inside. Our blood sugar is reasonably consistent and constant. Our pH is reasonably constant. All right. Um, our salinity is pretty constant. Okay. Our weight doesn't change that much during the course of the day. All right. Um, so we maintain a very consistent internal environment. It's called homeostasis. And our mitochondria like that temperature. They like that glucose concentration. They like that oxygen concentration. They like that pH. All right. They like all that stuff. We're doing it for them. So you respond to stimuli. You're not at the whim of your environment. You can do things about it. And not just you, right? All organisms can do something about it. And homeostasis is just... Maintaining a constant internal environment. So it's all this subconscious stuff um, Yeah. You don't even think about much of blood pressure. You don't even have to think about it. All that. All that. Uh, most of these homeostatic mechanisms operate through feedback loops, okay? Much like the temperature in this room. If it starts to get too warm in this room, hopefully, no risk of that today, hopefully, if it starts to get too warm, there will be a sensor somewhere that detects that warm temperature, and it will cause the air conditioner to turn on. Yes? Absolutely. Right? Likewise, if it starts to get too cold in here, we have a sensor for that too. It will trigger the heat to come on, and it'll bring the temperature back up, okay? If you're going to maintain internal homeostasis, right, the best way to do that is through negative feedback loops, okay? Um, a stimulus is resulting in a response that negates the stimulus, okay? If my blood sugar gets too low, okay, I might release some glucagon, which is going to convert glycogen into glucose in my liver and dump it down into my blood, which is going to bring my glucose level back up. If I start to get too cold, I'm going to start to shiver, and that action of my muscles is going to produce a lot of byproduct of heat, which is going to bring my temperature back up. If I start to get too hot, I'm going to start to sweat a lot, which is going to bring my temperature back down. Negative feedback loops. There are positive feedback loops in nature, right? Uh, but they're not very common. They're not good for homeostasis. Okay, let's say if it gets below 50 degrees in here, the air conditioner comes on. 
Good idea? That's positive feedback, right? Once it hits 80 degrees, the heating kicks on. That's positive feedback. That's not good for maintaining homeostasis. Negative feedback is good for maintaining homeostasis. Um, when you get, there are only a couple, like I said, good examples of positive feedback in nature. Um, nobody in here has a kid? Nobody? Childbirth is a good example of positive feedback. Okay? Um, muscular contractions in the uterus send out uh, chemical messages in the body which result in stronger contractions of the uterus, right? Which send out uh, more chemical signals into the body which result in more contractions of the uterus, which is good if you're trying to squeeze a large primate baby out of a reasonably small hole, right? Um, yes, ladies? Yes, gentlemen? Yes, I mean, drastic actions call for drastic measures and positive feedback is often the, the result of that. So 99.999% of your life, you're undergoing negative feedback. Um, occasionally, you might have these one-off things happen that are positive feedback. Um, but usually that ends up in things spiraling out of control and weird things happening like bizarre immune responses to allergies and things like that or having babies. Okay, so positive feedback is usually a one-time thing geared towards a particular end. Um, and not always a good one, okay? Negative feedback is how we live our life, right? And you reproduce, okay? So you're arranging a hierarchy, you convert energy, you maintain homeostasis via negative feedback loops, and you reproduce. That's what life does. It doesn't matter what genes you have. If you don't have babies, those genes don't go on, right? So it's not the survival, it's the reproduction that's important. Of course, there's a relationship between the two, but it's the reproduction that's the focus here, okay? Um, organisms grow and reproduce. It's not just you reproducing necessarily as an organism and having babies. Um, you cut yourself somewhere and cellular reproduction happens, right? You gotta fill that gap. You gotta fill that hole that you just made in yourself, right? You reproduce your cells all the time. You're mostly making clones through the process of mitosis and cell division, right? All, every cell in your body pretty much has the same DNA, gametes notwithstanding. Right? Uh, and you reproduce those all the time, right? When you're walking around, um, this is kind of gross, but I have a pile of dead cells that came off of me uh, that stretch right about here across the side of the room as I walk back and forth, right? Uh, yes, it is gross. Um, just, if you think that's gross, just think about what's on your mattress, okay? All kinds of disgusting things, right? So you're reproducing all the time. Individual cells, right? Um, and when you go ahead and have babies, you'll be reproducing entire copies of yourself. Right, that are hybrids between you and the person you decide to have that reproduction event with, okay? So as we know from Watson and Crick, DNA, right, is the basis of this, of this reproduction. That's what you're passing on. That's where the information is. Your DNA provided the instructions for what? What does your DNA give you? Instructions for making proteins, for making proteins, right? Your metabolism, right? The instructions on how to convert energy are in your DNA, right? That's how you make your, your proteins. You look like your mom and you look like your dad because you have the same proteins as your mom and your dad. It's not I have my dad's ear, right? I have the same enzymes that made my dad's ear because that's what I got from him, right? And so I have a similar ear because I have the same uh, kind of proteins to make an ear. Of course it's going to look the same. I have the same blueprint for how to make an ear, all right? Um, the DNA is part of the story. It's not all of it, right? The environment that you grow that DNA in Right, it makes a big difference. Anybody know identical twins? Anybody know any identical twins? You do. You know, when they're really, really young, 
you can't tell them apart, right? And they take turns taking exams for each other and things like that, right? As they live their lives, right, they start to kind of grow a little bit different from each other. As they, the older they get, more usually the more you can tell them apart. Personality, yes, yes, yes. Personality changes, right? Uh, maybe one uh, likes pasta more than the other, weight differences, right? They're not eating the same thing. Um, they don't like to dress the same as each other and things like that. Right? Uh, as they age, personalities emerge. The environment that that DNA is growing in has an effect on it. Small changes, but they accumulate over time. I had, I'm tell you the story, a couple of twins in my biology 101 class, uh, or, no, it was a natural history class a year ago. Um, Tara and Brett Castle, great kids, right? Um, and they were identical twins, and they really, even though they were in college, they really looked a lot alike. You could not tell which one was which. One was a slightly better dresser. Okay, and that's one, you know, I, okay, she's wearing the sweatpants, so that's Brett. You know, that was, the, that was the way that I did it. And the other one's wearing the, you know, the Dolce & Gabbana. So um, they had personality differences, but if they, if they dressed the same, you just could not tell which one was which, okay? Um, and they were taking an exam one day, you know, writing their answers as opposed to filling out circles on the multiple choice thing, you know, writing out answers to questions. Okay, and I was looking, I was looking at him, I was looking at him, and I was like, man, this is weird, right? And there was, I was trying to, I was seeing something, and I didn't know what it was. Okay, and I finally figured it out what was so weird about them. And I've asked them on occasion to come into other biology classes that I've taught, right, just so I can kind of play this con game with the rest of my class. Have them both sit in the front of the room and have them write on a piece of paper and have the class figure out what's weird about that. Okay, they had the exact same handwriting. One was right-handed, the other one was left-handed. Blew my mind. Identical twins, one was right-handed. Had the exact same handwriting, but one was right-handed and one was left-handed. Who knows? Who knows, you know? Like whoever teaches you how to write, you write more like that person. It seemed to be, right? It was kind of the argument ender about handedness being purely a genetic thing, right? Because presumably they're clones, right? Yeah. I mean, you think being right-handed is something that really is formative to who you are as an individual. Turns out it might not necessarily be in your genes, right? That might be very influential in, uh, in the context of your environment. Right? So you can take the same DNA, grow it for one person to be a right-handed individual, and grow it for the other one to be a left-handed individual. Crazy stuff, right? So it's not just your genes that make you what you are, right? It's the environment and how the in environment is interacting with those genes that makes you who you are, right? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. You can change your life via diet and exercise, right? You can sit around and eat bacon all day, Right? Um, or you can eat more green things and get a little bit of exercise and you can extend your life by 10, 15 years. Right? It ain't just your genes, right? You can, you can, and you can modify your environment to affect how your genes are expressed, which is fascinating in some kind of way. So it's not just I am who I am the day I'm born and that's all who I'm ever going to be. Right? You can affect gene expression via the way you live your life. Speak. Question? Uh, how's it like saying one, two, three, four, those are all parts of what? Uh, what living systems are. They're organized. They convert energy. They have a metabolism. You respond to change homeostatically and you reproduce. Those are the properties of living systems. And they have a history, which we're going to call paleoecology, the study of that. Um, you can look at those living systems biochemically. You can look at the biochemistry of organization, the biochemistry of responding to change. You can look at the history of organization, the history of responding to change, right? Um, you can look at all of these living systems, each aspect of them, in a lot of different ways, right? They all tend to be carbon-based on Earth, 
they all use proteins as a mechanism of their, their metabolism. They all regulate their internal environment homeostatically and they all reproduce. Um, if nobody ever told you before, you're composed of matter. You take up space and you have mass. You've heard that before. Yes, you have, good. A lot of this might be a little bit of review, but we need to start on the bottom floor and start building up from, from there, okay? So this stuff, even though it's kind of goofy, yeah, sure, right? Um, it's gonna be stuff that we gonna have implications for the rest of the semester. You are most made of matter. Matter takes up space, which you certainly do, more as you age, right? And you have mass. What you weigh is the interaction between your mass and the pull of gravity based on the size of the thing that you're living on. If you're on the moon, do you have the same mass? You do, right? Do you weigh the, dis do you weigh the same? No, you don't, right? So mass and weight are different things. Weight, you measure in pounds, kilograms, newtons, things like that, right? Um, mass, you measure in grams, okay? So mass doesn't change no matter where you are in the universe. Your weight does. Goodness sakes, if you're in outer space, you are weightless, right? You have no weight, okay? Um, so there it is. Matter is made of elements. Naturally occurring, there are 92. That's my girl. What makes an element an element, right? Is that matter is made of elements. What makes an element an element? It cannot be broken down into something else via chemical means. Now you can break them down into other things via nuclear means. Okay, you can put them into a particle accelerator and make big heavy ones. You can make a bomb out of them and make a lot of small ones, right? So nuclear chemistry does, you can change from one element to another, right? When we talk about an, what an element is, can't be broken down via conventional chemical means. We're talking about the stuff that you can do in a chemistry lab on the campus, right? Just using the energy levels that you can achieve in an average chemistry lab via average standard chemical reactions, um, when you get down to that finest level of something and you can't subdivide something further, you're at the level of the element, okay? Um, what compounds are, they are combinations of elements in a fixed ratio. An excellent example being table salt, sodium chloride, right? It's a textbook example. Water is a good compound, right? Uh, dihydrogen oxide, we could be dorks and call it that, right? Hmm, I should, could use some dihydrogen oxide, you know? Yummy, yummy. All right, um, table salt is an interesting example, right, of a good, of a good compound, right? Um, not just necessarily talking about ionic bonds and things like that. We can talk about table salt via the concept of reductionism and emergent properties. Remember those? We can think about table salt, right, as a combination of what it's constructed from. Sodium and chlorine. Who knows anything about sodium? What is sodium? It's a metal, okay? If you take some sodium and put it in some water, what's it gonna do? It goes, boom. It's an explosive metal. It does. It's extremely exothermic reaction when you put it in water. You know, really nasty stuff, right? Um, chlorine, chlorine, elemental chlorine. What do you know about elemental chlorine? It's a nasty gas. Right, noxious, awful stuff. Um, chemi chemical warfare in World War I was pretty much chlorine-based. You know, clouds of chlorine wafting across the fields of France, right, living a path of destruction in its wake. So we take an explosive metal, combine it with a toxic green gas, and what do we get? Bacon, you know, preservative, yummy, yummy. Who doesn't like salt?
right? Um, so here's an example of emergent properties. Take these two things, right? Could you envision from these two compound, or these two elements, when you put them together, you would get something that has the properties of salt? Maybe not, right? That's an excellent example of emergent properties. So you can reduce salt to its components, right? And you can learn things about it. Okay, well, this is a metal and this is a gas, right? Um, so there's probably an ionic, an ionic bond here. So it's going to do things like dissolve in water. You can learn things about it using reductionism, but you lose some things along the way, right? You can't necessarily predict the emergent properties of sodium and chlorine when you put them together. So this is a good example of reductionism and, and emergent properties together. All right. So uh, to build up from there, we're going to reduce all the way down to uh, subatomic particles. Atoms are composed of neutrons, protons, and electrons. Neutrons have no charge. They're like your television set. They just take up mass. They don't really contribute anything to your life or anything that you do. They just take up space in your apartment and add mass to your life, okay? Contributing very little in the terms of substance, right? It's just more stuff that's in the nucleus. Uh, they're in the nucleus with protons, which do contribute positive charge, okay? So the nucleus, that's where most of the mass is. Right, neutrons and protons have just about the same amount of, amount of mass to them. What's the mass of a neutron and a proton? One, one. one what? Uh, Dalton. Dalton. It's one Dalton. That's my girl. You should sit in the back, right? Just so the rest of the class can hear your correct answers and learn from them, right? Um, one Dalton. Uh, and they're positive. Okay, so a nucleus is massy and positive, okay? And the electrons are zipping around the outside. Um, uh, electrons have mass. It's less than a thousandth of, a, of the mass of a, of, a, of a proton or a neutron, neutron, and they have a negative charge. Anybody know who came up with this convention of protons being positive and electrons being negative? You know that? Do you know that one? <laughs> who played with electricity a long time ago? Like maybe put a kite out in a thunderstorm. Ben Franklin came up with this whole positive-negative charge thing, right? One of the many things that Ben Franklin did. All right. Um, we like to, in chemistry classes and things like that, think about electrons as kind of going around a nucleus in a nice planetary orbit. You've seen pictures like this before, right? Here's a nucleus in the middle, and here's the electrons kind of zipping around the outside like the Earth around the sun, right? That is an excellent model. It is a depiction Okay, and that lets us do things like infer the appropriate structure of molecules and things like that. It is not reality. Okay, that is a model. Electrons don't go in circular orbits around the nucleus. It's more like this. It's more like when you go outside on a really hot August day and a bunch of gnats start buzzing around your head. Okay, it's more like that, right? The electrons are just kind of zipping, okay, around your head in a near light speed kind of, kind of way, okay? If you want to think about the amount of mass in these structures and how an atom is actually organized, if you think of, um, if you think of a modern professional baseball stadium, right, the size of the nucleus is about the size of second base, right, and the electrons are zipping around somewhere in the outfield. Okay, so most of an atom is what? Nothing. It's mostly nothing, right? Uh, very little of the atom actually has, has structure to it. Okay, literally, something about the size of a second base and a fly zipping around in the outfield. That's about the amount of stuff that's actually in an atom. 
Okay, so most of it is absolutely nothing. So this is more close to reality. So always keep that in mind, right? Even though we're going to draw them on the exam and on the board and all that kind of stuff like this, because when you do it like this, okay, these electrons are in this energy level and these are out here in this energy level and things, and they can make this many bonds, right? We're going to use this as a model and as a structural framework, but it's not reality in any kind of way, okay? It's good for solar systems. It's not good for atomics, right? So keep this in mind, but we're going to use this as the model to explain what's going on, okay? Good. I'll end by describing what the periodic table actually tells you, okay? When you look at the periodic table, you see a lot of things, 92 of them, if you're just looking at the natural occurring elements that look like this. This is the uh, periodic table designation for carbon. This is the atomic number, six. It has six protons in the nucleus. That's what makes carbon carbon. If it has seven, it's not carbon. It's nitrogen, okay? <coughs> Uh, this down here is the atomic mass, okay? So this is the atomic mass in Daltons, okay? What's up with the decimal? What's up with the decimal? How do you get a decimal if the Daltons are always in ones? It is the average of the isotopes, right? Most carbon in nature has six protons and six neutrons. Those are going to be called carbon-12. Some of them, about 2%, has six protons and seven neutrons. That's going to be carbon-13. Okay? About 1% is going to be six protons and eight neutrons. Those are going to be carbon-14. So 12 times 0.97 plus 13 times 0.02 plus 14 times 0.01 equals... 12.011, okay? It's the weighted average of the isotopes. An isotope, right, being an element of the same number of protons but having different number of neutrons. So it's all carbon. The carbon-14 just has more mass than the carbon-12, which has implications for photosynthesis, which we'll talk about in several weeks. As for now, I'll see you on Wednesday.